Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. Good morning, I'm Eric. Uh, Eric Van Dyne, one of the elders here. We do have, uh, before I get started here, we do have Elevate today, so uh, we'll go ahead and dismiss kids now. Elevate for first and second graders out this door, and we also have EGC uh, for our third grade through fifth graders heading out this door. Uh, Mr. Steve is back there, so uh, we'll let those guys get going. I'll move this before I knock it over. Awesome. Uh, Jeremy just gave you like the TLDR version of my sermon, so... If that was good enough for you, then I guess you don't have to stick around. But uh, this morning, you know, we've been in a series on personal discipline or personal practices, uh, things that we're practicing as part of being in the kingdom uh, of God and his beloved son. And this morning, we're going to talk about stewardship, stewardship. Uh, so if you would open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 3, today we're going to find, uh, we see here in this passage that God's people are undertaking the task of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem after a long period of exile to draw a completely unfair parallel into our modern context under this umbrella of of stewardship. We're going to be focusing on the three P's of a successful church-building fundraising campaign this morning. Okay? The first P, the promises of God to bless His people that we're going to take completely out of context. The second P is the prosperity that overflows in our lives when we respond in obedience. If you obey, you will get paid. And the last P is the pots full of cash that y'all are holding back from the Lord. It's time to give that money. (laughs) If you are an experienced uh, church folk, then uh, maybe you've heard something like this before. Uh, Often the topic of stewardship in the church is synonymous with what feels like a money grab. Give that money so we can buy the pastor a new luxury boat or an airplane. Get get lots of amens today. Give that money so we can build a new campus. Give that money so we can buy a satellite and broadcast the good news of Jesus around the world. Right? Right? The concepts of stewardship and giving have certainly been abused in the church. And yet the topic of money and possessions is a critical one that receives a lot of attention all throughout Scripture, and not least of which from Jesus himself. So we're actually going to be in Matthew chapter 6. We'll really be there this time. Not Nehemiah. That was a joke. All right, so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, which is and actually verse... Starting in verse 16, which is right after the passage we read last week uh, that we walked through with Jeremy on prayer. This is the Sermon on the Mount, a part of the Sermon on the Mount from Jesus. So we'll be in verse 16 uh, through 24. It says this Do not lay up, oh, sorry, let me back up. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that that their fasting may be seen by others. And truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret 
will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, then your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light inside you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And we're trying a new thing here, and we'll get this on the slides at some point. But uh, we say, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Amen. Okay. So, we're in the Sermon on the Mount. My hope for us today is to understand that God wants us to steward our money and possessions as an act of worship in his already but not yet kingdom. All right, so let's get a little bit of context for where we are in this passage. Matthew, the author of this book, is writing to tell, the others, to tell other people the good news about who Jesus is and what he has done. He's been collecting these things from the last 30 to 40 years and writing them down. In the first three chapters of Matthew, he does an awesome job of connecting Jesus to the Old Testament through his lineage, through his fulfillment of various prophecies concerning the Messiah who would come as the rescuer. Matthew says right up front that Jesus will be called Emmanuel, or God with us. Jesus is presented as the fulfillment of all that has come before and as one who is worthy to speak on behalf of God. And then we come to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is speaking to the people about what the kingdom of God is like and what the people of the kingdom look like. But it's very strange it's upside down from the version that they expect and that they've come to know. Instead of saying, blessed are the wealthy landowners, for they have received God's promised prosperity, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Instead of blessed are those who have life abundantly, for they shall live a life of ease, he says, blessed are those who mourn, who have lost, for they shall be comforted. Instead of blessed are those who scheme and strive for higher salaries, for they shall achieve management and executive status, he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And instead of blessed are those who are well fed and full, he says, blessed are those who, are hunger, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. On and on he continues, unpacking things that they thought they knew about God and his kingdom, turning them on their heads and explaining their true meaning and their true motivation. Jeremy talked last week about prayer and how Jesus took their understanding of it as a formal, grandiose experience that was centered on my attention and my glory and instead making it, made it an intimate conversation with God, the God of the universe, who's invited us to call him Father. He continues on. And then we get to our passage today, where Jesus addresses a topic that's very close to our hearts, money. He starts by saying this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither rust nor moth, blah, 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 
moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Wait a minute, Jesus. We don't talk about money, no, no, no. We don't talk. Okay. Jesus, uh, you can talk about prayer. You can talk about fasting. You can talk about loving your enemy. All of these things are good. But I don't know if you have the right to talk about treasures. I worked really hard for these. I'm taking care of me and I'm taking care of my own. Now remember that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him and through him all things were created on heaven and on earth. And he's saying these words to us, but already our defenses are up. Our eyes squint, we give him the stink eye, and we say we're warming up our arguments to come back. But why are we so defensive about money and our possessions? Why does Jesus warn us about money being so powerful and yet we treat money as something that's just, it's private. We just don't, we don't talk about that. The Bible has lots of passages about stewarding our money and our wealth all throughout time. It says, it talks about the righteous rich. It talks about unrighteous people being rich. It talks about righteous, the righteous poor. It talks about unrighteous people being poor. We see God telling his people that he will bless them and even gives them the spoils or the treasures of their enemies. And then at the other end, we see Jesus saying, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. So what are we to do with all of these conflicting passages and directions? Let's go back and take a brief look at the story of God through the lens of stewardship. The story of God begins, as we talk about often, with an amazingly generous king. The triune God who is the creator of heaven and earth. Out of his generosity, he created all things, including humans. And then he invited them or gave them the privilege of ruling over all creation in his stead. We were called to be stewards. In Genesis, we see the words uh, what we, of what we have come to call the cultural mandate that God gives to his people. To fill the earth, to subdue it, to have dominion over all aspects of creation. Material possessions are a good gift from God, meant for all of his people to enjoy. In the end of Genesis chapter 1, um, after God creates the world and gives it to Adam and Eve to steward, he says, this whole thing is very good, very good. We were called to preserve and protect the natural world and also create culture and economic flourishing by stewarding this natural world that was given to us. But we also see that material possessions are one of the primary means of turning human hearts away from God. We know that this perfect relationship with God, mankind, and creation didn't last very long. Adam and Eve rebelled against the good and generous kingdom, bringing sin and suffering into the world. Mankind has been building his own kingdoms ever since, kingdoms of selfishness and self-serving, exploiting the poor and the needy in order to make the few rich. And starting with Abraham, God calls a people to himself to receive his blessing and to be a blessing to the world as his covenant people. He rescues them from slavery out of Egypt and generously provides food for them in the desert for years, but warns them against trying to collect more than they need. He leads them to the promised land, and he gives it to them. He defeats their enemies before them. 
He, defi- he divi- bleh, divides the land equitably between all 12 tribes and all the people. He puts rules in place so that no one suffers for too long with too little and no one accumulates too much for too long. Material blessings within God's covenant people, that's an important thing, are a blessing for their obedience. And we see that the possession of or the desire for too many material goods leads to the rejection of God, our interpersonal hostility and exploitation and neglect of the poor. Because of this, most of the property laws of the Torah set limits on the amounts to be accumulated. There's a fascinating study, a couple of resources I forgot to bring up here. Um, Neither Poverty Nor Riches by Craig Blomberg goes through a great detail of looking at how God sets up the Old Testament laws, not as the way things should be, but the way things are because of what sin has brought into the world and how God attempts to create equity among his people. Because of these, uh, the people then, as we know, cry out for a king. And God warns them what will happen to the prosperity that he's already given them if they have a king. That he grants their wish, and he even sets limits for the king himself on the amount of gold and silver and horses that he, and other resources that the king should be allowed to have. But what actually happened? The enormous wealth accumulated by the monarchy fueled social injustice and brought the, the critique of the prophets and eventually the collapse of the entire kingdom and the loss of the promised land, everything that God had given them. So fast forward, just hitting the highlights here. We can't go through all this. Uh, In Jesus' day, surprise, greed still abounded as kings and rulers and even religious leaders fought to gain and maintain a larger share of the pie at the expense of those in need. Jesus gave many warnings to watch out for all kinds of greed in this earthly kingdom. He says in Luke chapter 12, verse 15, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. He tells the parable of the rich man who has so much surplus from his harvest that he can't even fit it all into the barns that he already has. And so he says, I'm going to tear these down and make bigger ones so I can store even more stuff. And as the parable goes, God comes to the man and says, You fool. You don't know it, but tonight your soul will be required of you, and then what's going to happen to your stuff? You will never be able to enjoy it, and neither will anyone else. Jesus also says in Matthew 25 that we should be generous to the least of these. It's a sign of the righteous. And he warns those who who are not generous to the least of these. The warning is that we will be eternally separated from God. Jesus knows that we were created to worship. We were designed to find ourselves satisfied through a worshiping relationship with the infinite God. But we've instead cultivated an infinite desire for finite stuff. We're created to worship and greed is idolatry. But Jesus enters time and history, bringing a new kingdom in the midst of these earthly kingdoms. Back to the passage in in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. He says this, 
No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. These two kingdoms are at war, not for our wallets, but for our worship, the worship of our hearts and our lives. And we can really and truly serve only one. We know that money and possessions are powerful, and yet we cling to them behind walls of privacy that we don't share. In my junior year of college, I moved into an apartment off campus uh, with a former roommate, somebody that I had roomed with in a previous, uh, earlier in, the, in my college life. This was the very late 90s, so our internet still went to dial up, so that's how bad it was. One of the things that we did at the end of our long days of class and study and work, we kind of ended up back at the house about 10 o'clock, and we would sometimes watch a television program called Jerry Springer. (laughs) So some of you who are old enough know that the Jerry Springer show was a menagerie of the weirdest people confessing the most intimate and bizarre details of their life in front of a studio audience and on live TV. Live TV is what we had before we had phones where we could watch anything we want anywhere at any time. You had to sit there and wait for it to be brought to you, basically. So, Jerry Springer, there were relationship squabbles, there was sexual indiscretion, there were baby daddies and daddy babies, and you name it, they found people out of the woodwork to talk about it and fight about it on national TV. My roommate, let's say this, this, okay. My roommate, the man who was my roommate is black, and when black people were the ones on the TV doing these things, he would shake his head and say, I weep for my people. And that is a perfect response every time to the Jerry Springer show, regardless of who's there. But one thing I never heard people confess out of all of the weirdness of their lives was how much money they made. We have small groups called Gospel Communities at Refuge, and after building trust in relationships, I've heard confessions of relational brokenness, wrestling with sexuality, and other struggles at the very core of our identity. But have you heard or have you given a confession of a struggle with greed? or seeking wisdom about what to do with your budget, or a bonus, or a raise. Why don't we talk about money? Why do we consider it to be so private? I think it's because we know that it has power. When we talk about salaries, or properties, or possessions, uh, it does more than just give us a measuring stick with which to judge ourselves and others. It activates all kinds of deeper and darker thoughts and motivations that have been twisted by sin as we've worshipped this God of greed. When we hear someone that is getting a bonus or a raise somewhere inside of us, we often think, I deserve it more than they do. And then we do the mental math to re-rank ourselves on the net worth scale to see where we measure up if we've come up or down. When we hear of someone losing a job or suffering a financial feedback, there's some tiny part of us that says, sorry, sucker, 
It's my chance to get ahead now. We look at houses and cars and boats and swimming pools and vacations, quietly accusing others of greed and mismanagement, yet we never examine our own spending, our own saving, or our own giving. And those, unfortunately, who do some of the most valuable work in our society but get paid the least, like social workers and teachers, can be prone to despair and anger, condemning others who achieve significant financial gain. This issue of money and possessions, it runs deeper than just a kingdom that doesn't value what God does. It cuts to the center of the human heart where we place something else on the throne to be worshipped. Ecclesiastes, a writer of, the, of Ecclesiastes says this, whoever loves money never has enough. Money will never satisfy. We talk about that every week in our stewardship time there. We know that money makes a terrible God because it will never satisfy. And Jesus even warns about that in our passage today. In verse 22, he says, The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is this darkness? These verses about the eye seem out of place in the middle of this um, discussion, this teaching that Jesus is doing on money and possessions. But here, in this passage, the eye represents the gateway to the heart, to to the center of our will, or the filter through which we live life. Jesus appropriately uses the eye here, which is something that leads us to the lust after the things of this world. Draw things that draw us into temptation to serve money or pursue possessions with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In our day, at least here in the West, our prevailing economic view is that of self-interest, right? Satisfy our own limitless desires with increased consumption and leisure by earning and keeping as much as possible. When money rules our hearts, we give it the power to destroy us. Not just us as individuals, but to destroy the community as we we seek to obtain more and more of it at the expense of the lives of others. Accumulating and hoarding resources that are not for kingdom purposes prevents others from having a better opportunity for a reasonably decent standard of living. But Jesus, here in this passage, calls us to different patterns of consumption, production, and exchange as part of his economy in his kingdom. So this is depressing. How do we break free from the power of possessions, from the idolatry of greed that's gripped our hearts in this earthly kingdom? This is the good news that we see in this passage, that God is both bringing his kingdom and he is welcoming his people into that kingdom through forgiveness and reconciliation. The key for us as we respond is giving. First and foremost, Jesus inaugurates this new kingdom through his own life, death, and resurrection. Philippians 2, chapter five, verse 5 through 11, gives the beautiful passage, the picture of Jesus, the creator and the sustainer of all things, making himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant. 
he lets go, giving up his position of privilege and even his life for the sake of the world. God the Father freely gives us his grace, his mercy, and his forgiveness because of Jesus, because of what Jesus has done. In Colossians 1.13, which we already read this morning, it says, He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Delivered doesn't mean that we had to buy our own ticket and then we got on a plane and had to wait. God took us from one place to another and invites us to respond to Him. When we repent of our greed our lust for, and the worship of the things of this world, it's then that we begin to trust God and find satisfaction in His goodness. And this is the good news or the gospel, and we must begin here in order to find freedom. And the good news is that we can trust in the one who has already reconciled us through Jesus. So, for those who trusted in Jesus to reconcile us, who've been transferred into this kingdom that's both already but not yet, how do we begin to practice this kingdom economy here and now? Jesus gives the answer in the middle of this passage in verse 21. He says this, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is a familiar passage. This whole thing is a familiar passage. And it's easy to hear this one as something different. We often hear it as, where your heart is, your treasure will be also. From which we like to take, ah, if I look at where my treasure is going, that's an indication of what I love. Or if I just get my heart right, then my money will follow. This is true. You can look to see where your money is going and judge where your, where your heart is. But this is not the primary thing that Jesus is saying here. Jesus is giving us a practice or a discipline that will help to lead our hearts. When we give our treasure, our hearts will follow. When we practice giving generously, we recognize both our own weakness and our temptation to give in to the sin of greed, but also our desire for God to continue to conform us to his image. Giving is not a punishment for having too much stuff, okay? Just like the practice of study is not a punishment for not having enough knowledge about who God is, and the practice of fasting is not a punishment for having too much food. These are practices, the practices including giving are tools that help us to know God more and to more fully enter into the reality of the kingdom that he presents and that he is bringing. Uh, I mentioned the book uh, by Craig Blomberg, uh, Neither Poverty Nor Riches, a quote uh, just from him out of that book, a necessary sign of a life in the process of being redeemed is that of transformation in the area of stewardship. We see this right away in the New Testament as the, as the church is starting out. How do they figure out how things are supposed to work? Peter and Paul both encourage generosity, but without all of the social reciprocity or expected to return that was often associated with generous gifts in those days. A lot of giving to get. If I give to you, 
I expect to get some kind of relational uh, rent in return so that I can get favors back. But that's not the way uh, the New Testament uh, pastors and preachers presented the idea of giving. We're to declare with our words, our actions, and our very lives that there's a new king and a new kingdom that we're a part of. So this, I'm going to guess that most of that is not much of a surprise to us. We know the power of greed. We know the power of possessions. We know the privacy that we try to hold these things much like we do with other things. And we know the power of repenting and confessing those things, not just to God for for his reconciliation, but to one another to be held accountable. And yet, how do we really bring it into practice in our own lives? That's long been a question that's difficult to answer because there are so many variables in the lives of our, in our own lives. So the people of Jesus' day shared many of the same questions and concerns that we do in response to this, right? We find ourselves often, when we think about money and possessions and stewardship, in a quagmire of uncertainty about how we should operate in our economy. Should I save all that I can to take care of myself and my family? That seems responsible. The government and my employer aren't going to do that, and we will suffer if I don't do it. Or should I give everything I have away to help those in need, uh, entering into the ranks of those of poverty with the least of these? The government won't help, and big business doesn't care. Isn't it the righteous thing for me to do? Many of us experience some kind of guilt about our lifestyles while feeling stuck about how to make changes. What do we do? We feel shame that that may cause us to shut down or not respond because of things that we have done or choices we have made. We may feel defensiveness because uh, that causes us to seek to justify ourselves and our lifestyles. And both of these responses of shame and defensiveness can lead to inactions, inaction. And yet, the command of Jesus, the call of Jesus is to say, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That giving is an active practice to war against greed and idolatry. So how can we do it? Let's get into a few, a few nuts and bolts. Again, this is hard. How much should we give? The Bible, surprisingly, does not give a clear answer. The tithe in the Old Testament is something that we have, the church has often leaned on. But it truly applies to the Israelites in the Old Testament, to his covenant people. And unless we all have the same income and the exact same needs, then giving a fixed percentage will never be able to legislate the true generosity of our hearts. If you apply a fixed amount like 10%, that could overburden somebody who's near, already struggling to survive or living near the poverty line. And it could leave the wealthy if they only have to give 10%, a false sense of accomplishment to say, hey, I met the objective, I'm done. Still got plenty to buy that boat. So what do we do? How much should we give? One step that can be helpful is determine how much do you need to be content? How much is enough to truly meet your needs, the needs that we have, and to be satisfied 
with a simple life. There's a suggest, uh, one of the things that I've heard and read is something called a graduated tithe. I don't like the word tithe because it draws a whole bunch from uh, Old Testament that, that may or may not, that doesn't really apply. But this graduated uh, uh, system where if you calculate what you need and you give a baseline percentage on that, then as your income level grows, you can increase the amount that you give until the point where you have no more need and you can give everything away above a certain amount that comes into you. We can give generously above and beyond what we actually need. Again, it's really hard to give practical advice. Uh, There's a quote from C.S. Lewis that provides some wisdom here that I found very helpful uh, in starting to think through this for myself. He says this, I do not believe that one can settle how much we ought to give how much we ought to give. I'll say it that way. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditures on comforts and luxuries and amusements and all those things is up to the standard of common among all of those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they're probably too small. There ought to be things that we would like to do but cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. That's helpful wisdom. As we figure out how much we should give, we can give generously. Another question to ask is, where should we give? That's an incredibly practical question. Uh, We see uh, three main purposes of Christian giving that can be discerned from all of the study of Scripture and church history. That's helping the poor, especially those within the church body, supporting local ministers, and funding evangelism and missions. The local church should be working to support these three areas. We should be giving to the local church to support these areas. In the New Testament, we see that Paul regularly encourages the churches that he visits and that he writes to to give sacrificially to the collection that he's making, not for his own support, but to support the need of the believers in Jerusalem who are suffering. At Refuge, uh, we believe that the, the local church is the mission. This is the primary way that God is going to establish his king in the wor- kingdom in the world. And so we strive to meet the needs of our members and also to support uh, local church plants and other church planting organizations around the world so that the local church can make the word of God known and make his kingdom known in all of these places. So give to the church to support these efforts, helping the poor, supporting local ministers, and funding the evangelism and missions. But don't stop there. We can give outside the local church. There are great opportunities. Uh, And this is where we could talk uh, at at length. Uh, Look for organizations that are kingdom-oriented or that are aligned with the same goals. Sponsor children in the name of Jesus. Provide clean water in the name of Jesus. All of these things are building a new kingdom in the name of Jesus. I encourage you, give generously to organizations that you... uh, for which you already volunteer your time. And alternatively, volunteer your time at organizations where you already give financially. Engage in kingdom work. Steward your resources, not just your money. At 
and be part of this mission at all levels. You can give to individuals in need, even if you don't get a tax deduction. It's okay. You can help people out. Earlier in Matthew 6, Jesus encourages us to do this in secret with the understanding that our Heavenly Father knows our motivations. Giving is a practice that directs our hearts away from greed, away from worshiping the idol of money, and to worship the true God and the creator of all things. But giving is just one aspect of stewardship. Uh, I was not allowed to preach the nine-week sermon series that I had planned, and so uh, we're going to just stick with this as kind of a focus on the worship aspect of stewardship. But as Jeremy mentioned earlier today, and as we talk about often, stewarding our lives and our resources is much bigger than just how much money goes out of your wallet every week or every month. It's about how do you spend, what's your vocation? How do you engage in the community? How, do you, how are you working for the flourishing of all people? How are we working for a more equitable and just society? All of these things flow out of the gift of the kingdom that has been given to us for those who've trusted in Jesus. We're called to follow Jesus and lay down our lives for others even as we steward the world and the gifts that he's given us. Yes, you might have to sacrifice some of your own comfort and give up some of your luxury purchases. You might be called to upend the hiring practices and make room for some of the least qualified people. You may have to spend money hiring someone to do a job that you could do yourself so that they can know the dignity of work and providing for their own family. You might be called to reduce the certainty or the scope of your own retirement dreams so that you can invest in the lives and ministries of others here and now and also meet the needs and take care of those around you. So in closing, which is the best part, when we give, we reflect the image of our giving God. But when we worship the idol of money, when our lives are oriented primarily towards earning and getting and keeping, we become deformed, reflecting not the image of God, but of money, the God of me and the God of mine. I'll say this, God doesn't want your money. He wants the worship of your heart in the midst of an intimate and trusting relationship as his adopted son or daughter that goes way beyond anything that money could potentially buy. We're transformed by Jesus to be generous worshipers. So let us practice giving generously in order to steer our hearts away from the love of money and toward a deeper love of Jesus and the kingdom that he has inaugurated. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for being the good and generous gift, good and generous God that you are that you've created all things and that you've given to them to us to enjoy, to steward, to build from, to build culture and economies. God, thank you for beyond just money and resources. Thank you for the talents that you've given to us 
the minds, the hearts, the emotions, the voices, the athletic ability, all of these things that you've given to us as humankind are your good gifts. And God, even as we come to see that we have taken hold of these things and put some of them in the places that they ought not be, that we have worshipped greed, that we've worshipped money or resources or possessions or something even beyond that, help us to recognize that these are false gods and that they will never satisfy us. God, we ask you to do the work of opening our eyes, of taking these things off the throne of our hearts and placing yourself there so that we may worship you in spirit and in truth as we come to know you. And God, as you, have tr- as you turn our hearts, as you help us to trust in you, not only for our salvation as one who's reconciled us, but for us to trust you to provide for us day in and day out for our daily bread and our resources, I pray that you would help turn our hearts towards those around us, that we may be able to love you and love those around us generously. God, I pray that as we step into and reinvigorate this practice of giving, that you would open our eyes to see where we have room to give, that you would soften our hearts to see that we have lifestyle that that we can bring back in order to make room for your kingdom and your mission going forward. God, we know that you are the ruler of all of the world, and you don't need our money, you don't need our resources in order to make your mission go forward. And yet, you've invited us to participate. You've given us a way to practice what it looks like to be part of this kingdom. I pray that you would help us to do that, to be faithful and generous givers so that we may ultimately worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.